0: Hello, this is Stephen Coates of the Bureau of Lost Culture. What is the Bureau of Lost Culture? Well, we're a collective dedicated to recollecting, unearthing, reanimating, revivifying lost, half-remembered, half-forgotten counter-cultural stories. And today we are hearing the story of the UFO, not unidentified flying objects, not yet, that's going to come later. But the UFO, the underground freak out, the club that existed for a very brief time in 1967 and 1968 here in London, but seemed to be one of the most influential institutions of the London countercultural underground. And I'm here with Peter Watts, the journalist, but also a music countercultural historian. Hello, Pete.
1: Hello. Are you a Londoner? I am a Londoner. Yeah, in fact, I have only ever lived within the M25.
0: I love it. It's <laughs> funny, actually, I was reading uh, about you, and uh, you, you are a journalist, writer, amazing blog, the great one, of, you know, a countercultural cultural historian. Um, you started off as a journalist when you were 17, right?
1: I did, yeah, yeah. I started off uh, writing about sport, actually, at the Sunday Times. Anymore. I mean, and I did get a lucky break. I don't think it was... Um, It was even particularly common then, but I guess what there was was I could start working doing basically doing football results, keying them in at a national newspaper and get paid for it at a very young age and that allowed me to get into the newspaper business um, through that route. Um, I don't know whether those sort of jobs still exist because a lot of it will be automated or just, you know, it doesn't require as much manpower as it did. So yeah, but I think also
0: times have changed. It's almost like the bar, the bar is different now, isn't it? It's like, uh, even though the, everything's about being inclusive and stuff, in yeah. some, some ways it's Well, I mean,
1: journalism is like famously a really unequal industry as well. And, um, you know, it's a massive amount of Oxbridge candidates get in there. Um, it's much harder to do it without a degree of any kind and without any, uh, you know, a background in, in sort of uh, journalism at all.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, but you have evolved from there. You've become, you've written for... A, lots and lots and lots of newspapers and books. And, you know, in terms of what we're going to talk about today, you've written about this amazing club, the UFO. And how do you describe it, the UFO? It's difficult to sort of sum up because it's as a place, I mean, just round the corner from here, up in Tottenham Court Road, Mm. right? But existed for such a brief time and yet has become this kind of mythic place and, as I said, rightly so in many ways because so many things seem to either happen there or personalities... Seems to be revolving around it, yeah. And then many of whom became very famous and influential for counterculture and even in just the culture right afterwards.
1: Yeah, I mean, what's fascinating about it um, is that it was uh, it was like all the kind of all of the things that, that went went into form the counterculture of 1967 could be found there for this very brief time. And then when it closed, it was almost like the cult counterculture then kind of evaporate, not evaporate, but it fragmented. Um, into lots of different organisations, and it you know, and for a while, it was all contained, and you had politics, you had music, you had art, you had avant-garde film, you had you know, you had you had uh, shops like Granny Takes a Trip, who mm-hmm. you know you could, you, could, you had food there, you had um, you know politics was it was very political, like uh, release was formed there, that sort of drug charity, um, it all went on under this roof of this Irish club in Tottenham Court Road. Um, in a way that uh, I don't think happened before or since where it was also beautifully put in one place. Yeah. And as you say, with all those very important figures from the, you know, who are sort of counterculture legends like Barry Miles and, and Hoppy Hopkins, but also big people like McCartney and Hendrix and Townsend and, you know, they were all involved in it as well.
0: I think the other thing which is fascinating from a point of view of a sort of temporal point of view, I mean, it's over 50 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but... You know, like the summer of love, so-called summer of love in London, like the summer of love in, in, in America, was this incredibly short period, wasn't it? Yeah. Like punk was later. I mean, when yeah. Barry Kane was in here, we're talking about, you know, it's just a couple of years, really, yeah. a very small scene. Yeah. Possibly even you could say the same about rave stuff later in the 80s and 90s, yeah. this very brief window when this thing happens for lots of cultural reasons. And it's had these gigantic ramifications, hasn't it? Certainly ways.
1: very brief in its purest form, I think. you know. I mean, obviously, it, it continues in various ways, but becomes commercialised. One of the great things about uh, UFO, which I think is the, sort of, the way the heads would, would have described it, UFO, um, is that um, it was formed by the counterculture. It wasn't a sort of commercial enterprise coming in and trying to sort of tap in and, and appropriate the hippie or freak lifestyle. It was formed by Hoppy and Joe Boyd, um, who were very much from that world. Yeah. So it was kind of unsullied quite early on, you know, by you know, by other interests. So um, what, so
0: I'm going to call it UFO from now on, see
1: yep. whether the UFO. <laughs> um uh, but uh let's back up the truck. So mm-hmm.
0: it's 1966 and it's going into 67. Uh it's a building or it's a basement up off Tottenham Court Road. So just tell us how it Ufo came about yeah. and so where it, it was and
1: it, its origins were in the sort of Notting Hill scene of like the London Free School and the early days of Notting Hill Carnival and they they, they put on uh, Hoppy Hopkins who was a sort of uh, he was a he was a sort of physicist really and photographer who then became a very key member of the underground he formed International Times the underground newspaper IT um with uh, Barry Miles. Um, he put on a few nights at a church hall in Notting Hill where Pink Floyd played. This proved to be quite successful. They decided to sort of take that into the centre of London, partly really as a way of raising money for to pay for um, IT, because IT was, uh, you know, it was a really important, it was the only way of the counterculture and the alternative society kind of, you know, communicating with each other, you know. Um, so they wanted to keep that going. It was always getting busted by the police. They were struggling to get anyone to even print a lot of a lot of their issues. So they needed money. They came up with the idea of having this club to do that. Um, they looked for venues. And I think Joe Boyd, um, the sort of music producer, um, who came at it very much from a slightly different angle to Hoppy. Hoppy was quite political and quite you know, pure, as we said, Boyd was much, he was, he was, you know, he was political, but he was also very interested in music and finding interesting and exciting music to produce um, and promote. Um, he found this club, um, an old Irish uh, ballroom on the Tottenham Court Road, right at the bottom of the Tottenham Court Road. It's no longer there. I think it's pretty much now where, I think there's a branch of Waterstones there. It's pretty much there. Um, it was underneath the cinema Um, You know, the the, the Irish landlord said, yeah, you know, you can have it for 15 quid on a Friday night. And um, they moved in and they did their first two nights either side of Christmas in December 66. Um, And the house band was Pink Floyd. Um, And as I said, you know, the idea was this was going to be almost like IT in a kind of three dimensional immersive form so you would go there and there'd be like you know they'd, they'd play a Kurosawa films or WC Fields shorts and there'd be light shows and there'd be music and there'd be food um, it was all those things that made up the, the sort of nascent underground
0: so nothing like that at the time either i mean that kind of combination of sort no. of politics music art Avant-garde no. food. I mean, fashion. It was all kind of all mixed up together. It's
1: yeah. Quite... I mean, it, you know, this this was pre-festivals. There was, I mean, they been the marquee had tried. You know, there'd been little event, little attempts at doing things like this, like one-off things. But certainly nothing in such a prime location um, on a you know on such a regular basis. Um, and, and it, 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 you know, they, they brought in um, some of their friends to design the posters, and that kind of created really the sort of British psychedelic art movement, which is a really interesting. Um, thing of its own so that came
0: out of actually doing the publicity posters for UFO yeah Um, yeah
1: so Boyd and Hopkins both put together they had friend Nigel Weymouth and Michael English and they were both kind of interested in art and they put them together and they kind of collectively formed this this um, art collective who designed the very first UFO posters um and that was pretty much the beginning of the of the psychedelic art form i mean you know, people like martin sharp and were doing things in australia and over and had come over to england to do things but that was really the sort of the english uh, genesis of it yeah well right let's
0: talk, look, well, let's come back to that one but let's talk about the music because this was the same thing wasn't it that, that at that time these bands that went obviously went on to be absolutely massive like pink floyd mm. um they were kind of all sort of knew each other, didn't they? That was the point, I suppose, wasn't it? They were sort of like buddies or kind of, you know, been to school together or college together, quite a few of them, or there was a kind of network of people, wasn't
1: it? Well, I think that's the thing to remember, really, is how small this world was. I mean, you know, I think they all knew each other. It was quite a small world of, right, really dedicated hippies and freaks. Um, and they, you know, and, and they all knew IT. They knew each other through IT. They knew each other through the Notting Hill scene. Um, and, you know, and what was interesting is, you know, the... the included in that are superstars, you know, not just people like Pink Floyd who have become superstars, but actual already existing superstars like Townsend and Eric Burden and, and Paul McCartney. They all were considered themselves part of this world. And I think I read a story, Alan Aldridge, who is another um, psychedelic artist, um. He, he wants, you know, he, he wanted to interview Paul McCartney. He decided this was going to be his big break. Um, and he just found his number in the phone book and phoned him up and said, I want to come around and interview you. And Paul McCartney said, yeah, sure, come around. You know, I'm not doing anything right now. You know, it was quite accessible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, they did all know each other and they were all on the same side. And, and whenever I've interviewed people um, from this scene, they all talk about the importance of drugs. Not mm. so much as in, you know, because it, you know, mind altering experiences, but because it kind of, uh, it was a bonding thing because they all, either smoked or took acid and if you did that you were a criminal and you were a target and right. I mean, that didn't matter whether you were George Harrison or you know if you were anybody in you know, any hippie anyone with long hair was targeted by the police because of their drug use I think and in, that brought them all together
0: right and in your in your piece on it um, I read I think it might maybe a quote from Twink but um he says uh, that helped the scene and so there was a real conflation of poor bohemians wealthy posh people And the new rich rock and rollers. Each category helped the other, often funding things like IT and UFO. So it's it's a very unusual from that point of view, isn't it? So you've got like, you know, rock royalty, Paul McCartney and who and all that stuff already didn't need that scene in a way, you could sort of say. And then you've got people who are sort of right at the bottom of the tree and then and, and sort of bohemians and and even kind of like you know, sort of those homeless people kind of wandering into the offices of IT, weren't they? It was yeah. a, it, you can't imagine that now. I think that's a, it's different Everything's the world has changed, hasn't it? So
1: yeah, I think so. I mean, one thing I was I was thinking about about UFO and why it's interesting is that it also was kind of the beginning of that idea of the counterculture being a kind of a collection of interests and political outlook. I think that has kind of dispersed now, and I think maybe that kind of had gone some time, maybe Britpop was the end of that moment. You know, even when in the 80s and 90s, if you were into underground music you were also into underground films and, and, and you know, a, a whole lifestyle came with that and a certain outlook. Um, certainly the case in punk, certainly the case in dance culture. I think that that no longer really exists um, in that in that form and it's, I think it began with, with, with UFO.
0: I mean I suppose you could say that for, for the Beatles or for, for McCartney and for, for Lennon that they obviously they were in this whole Period of reinventing themselves, and wanted to do that. So you know, buying into this nascent thing that was going on was was part of that transformation for them too, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I think Paul McCartney. I mean, obviously, I think with- the other thing is they're all different. All these people have their own reasons and interests, and-, and Pete Townsend has a very different view on it to Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney's view, I think, would be more like he was found these ideas really interesting. He found people like Barry Miles. Uh, just you know, he'd never it, this this was new stuff. You know, Barry Miles is very well educated. Paul McCartney, you know, he he wasn't. He came from a different background. He was interested in music. Um, so Miles introduced him to a whole world of avant-garde art and film mm. that he'd never have known otherwise. And you know, it was an eye-opening experience for him. Someone like Pete Townsend is much more sort of conflicted about it. And his his attitude was that the the freaks were kind of using the superstars to kind of raise their own profile. And he was and he was a bit wary. He was a bit kind of um he, he thought he talks he talks about how they all thought they were cleverer than us, but they needed us. Right. Um but that's very much Pete Townsend's point of view. It's I mean, they of might illustrative tr- of his of his outlook generally. There might be both things might be true, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean from the Beatles point of view it's interesting
0: because they had gone from I think you know, "Love Me Do" to sort of "Revolution Number nine mm. It's about what four or five years or something, mm. isn't it? An incredibly mm. short period of time. Mm. And then they probably wouldn't have been able to do that without those influences coming no. in from all over the place, right? You Absolutely know, guards, not. Cut-ups, you know, music concrete. You know, where yeah. is that coming from? You know, these yeah. these, these were sort of four, four 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 scouse lads, you know, playing the clubs of Hamburg, weren't they? Yeah. And then, you know, and then this huge, you know, top stardom, uh, and you know, tuning into this made a huge difference. I suppose it's. Tempting, and maybe we could talk about it. To wonder if the common thread, the kind of common fluid in this thing, is LSD because mm. it's that time, isn't it? I mean, it's LSD's been around for a while, mm. quite quite a long time actually, but it's it's sort of come in mm. from America and stuff, and it's people are turning on and they're tuning mm. in and dropping out, and that sort of brought all sorts of people together, didn't it? Because they're they're all having these extraordinary psychedelic experiences right yeah something's yeah. woken up
1: right oh yeah I think you definitely can't um, you definitely can't ignore the importance of LSD not even I don't think even as a a drug as much as a sort of um, a glue almost like mm. you know like you don't even have to take it I guess is what I'm trying to say for it to affect your consciousness that's what's fascinating about LSD at this time you know there were bands who were and artists who were embracing the LS you know the concepts of LSD, of, you know, of, of its visual and oral um, changes, without actually having taken the drug, because it was just in the culture.
0: Right, and you said that in, in your piece, because I think there were some musicians who were like, we weren't actually taking acid, yeah. but we were being influenced by acid-inspired music. Absolutely, They yeah. were changing what they did in yeah. response to the music that other people were making,
1: uh under the effects
0: or because of acid, right? Yeah,
1: I think so, and I think that that was probably something you've only ever seen maybe uh, ecstasy culture, sort of towards mm. the end of the eighties and nineties, where this very similar thing was going on. Um, yeah, and and yeah, LSD was hugely important, and part of the uh, UFO experience was kind of creating the right environment for a good trip as well. I think you know we got the sounds, and you got the you know the visuals, and you got a loving environment. You know, they, they used to talk about like you know, if they were sort of um, hostile people were present, and they'd they'd love bobbing them. You know, they'd go around. You know, it was a very, it was it was a that that was part of the experience. It was creating the right setting, and obviously, setting was a, was, was what they talked about a lot with their. Yeah, at that set and
0: setting, right? Like, yeah. and also you've got great food for when your clients come down a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, which <laughs> is important. So, so actually, let's let's go back to UFO then, so because it only existed for about a year. So mm. may, maybe Pete, you could trace that year. From so Joe Boyd and Hoppy and you know they they started up Joe Boyd obviously became very well known mm. a bit, bit more later in which season and Nick Drake and Cat Stevens and all that stuff didn't he but um so he's programming the music mm-hmm. Hoppy is sort of directing it in some ways yeah you know?
1: I think so he's a kind of general kind of ringmaster he, he he's an interesting guy Hoppy I mean, he died a couple of years ago um I think he sort because he never kind of um, wrote books quite in the same way that someone like Barry Miles did He sort of st- not given maybe quite as much prominence as he should be, because he was really, you know, an integral part of the scene. Um and he was the you know, he he brought together a lot of interesting people. I mean so what you had at UFO was yeah, Boyd was do the music, he'd bring in Pink Floyd, and then when Pink Floyd got too big, he replaced him with Soft Machine. Um there were other bands who'd play there regularly, like Tomorrow would play a lot. Um I think Boyd also brought in uh he brought in Prokol Harum, who played I think, he, I think they played when White A Shade of Pale was at number one. They played UFO at that point because um, they'd been booked a few weeks before it came out. Um, he brought the move in because he quite liked the move. And the move were one of those bands who weren't really psychedelic hippies, but they definitely knew how to make that that sound. Um, and I think that was a slightly unsuccessful evening. I was just sort of rereading Jonathan Green's book about, about the era, Day in, Days in the Life. And um, he says it wasn't quite successful as um, successful as, as he'd hoped it would be mm. um, because they were seen as slightly, you know, cultural. They, you know, they weren't from the scene. Whereas a band like Tomorrow very much were from the scene. Let's have a listen to Tomorrow then, right? <laughs>
0: i you Win though, isn't it, Pete? I mean, the lyrics, the the the, the 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 time changes, the sort of uh, the backward tape bits and yeah. stuff, and uh, and um, I mean, I was going to say it's a bit Beatlesy, but maybe it's the other way round. Maybe we be yeah. influenced by by Tomorrow. Or... It's
1: so it's 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 so funny hearing it and listening to it in the context of what we've just been talking about, and it suddenly all jumped out. The other thing I, I was thinking about was. Um, they, they talked about how uh, all the hippies at the time would wear bells, you know. So, um, and, and when it was sort of the end of um, UFO club, all, they'd all come out at dawn, and like people nearby would hear all the bells ringing, so it sounded like goat herds. <laughs> and um, in the middle of that, there's obviously the, the, the bicycle bell ringing, mm. which made me think about that and whether that was a deliberate kind of nod to the uh, to those kind of bell wearing hippies or not.
0: Well, also, um, I didn't it real refer to uh, a sort of. Uh, an early uh, Boris bike scheme in Amsterdam yeah. where you could you could sort of, which is still, still going, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's amazing.
1: Of... The, um, the the Dutch anarchist group, the Provost, who are one of the most fascinating, probably my favourite anarchist collective of the sixties. Um they were the provos and uh, yeah, yeah, they um they, they they got fifty bicycles, painted them white and just distributed them free in um, in Amsterdam. And um, and that was the idea. And I, I talked to Sam Hut, the uh, Hank Wangford, um, who was uh, on the scene at the time. And he had a white bicycle in London. You know, he had a bicycle. He painted it white in a sort of, you know, a, a nod to tomorrow and the Dutch anarchists because they were all. You know, it was seen as a global movement. Mm-hmm. It really was. Um, I mean, I love
0: that. I mean, of course, still going in Amsterdam, and of course, I mean, we've got our own commercialized version of it yeah. with forest bikes now, which is you know, it's, it's a great thing, isn't it? And um, we had Sam Hutt in uh, Hank Wankford, and uh, of course I can imagine him with, with uh, the, the most unconventional doctor in London, sort of <laughs> yeah. long hair and his zapper moustache and his white bike cycling and yeah. terrifying, uh, terrifying Totally. Uh, Not to see some pictures of that. He, um, uh, uh, I mean, we could talk more about that stuff. It? But so, but tomorrow then, I mean, uh, i I don't know much about that stuff, but they're not one of the more well-known bands from that era, are they? No, are they?
1: they're not. And they were really a sort of, you know, I think My White Bicycle was a really big song at UFO. Mm. The other song they did was, was Revolution, which was, you know, again, seen as quite a big song. Because, you know, also a lot of the people did genuinely believe there was a revolution of some kind or other going on. Some of them thought it might be a Marxist revolution. Some of them thought it was a cultural revolution. Or a revolution um, of consciousness,
0: at least, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: And, um, and Tomorrow and would tomorrow definitely... But even within that band, I think you had different outlooks. So you had Steve Mm. Howe, who went on to play in Yes, who I don't know how much he was involved in it. Uh, But Twink, the drummer, was very much a believer. Um, He later played with the Pink Fairies, um, who were another kind of, you know, they kind of carried the flag on up until Punk. Didn't he convert to Islam? Yeah, he, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's still around. He's still around. As is he still practicing Islam? He is. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, like, I can't remember like, his new name, unfortunately. Like but Kat yeah, Stevens. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so they 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 were playing at uh, UFO, yep. and um, I think I read in your uh, article as well that around right about this time um, Hoppy gets busted. Yeah. Uh, so that harassed. was a big
1: thing. So it it was going well the the um, the club, but. You know, it was attracting uh, the interests of the law because, you know, as we talked about, the, the importance of drugs um, for the uh, underground and also for the, you know, the authorities as a way of sort of clamping down on the underground. Um I think um, one of the early nights they had a sort of spot the fuzz competition, which was like look out for undercover officers um, at UFO. Um, yeah, Hoppy got busted. And what uh, were the circumstances of that? How did that come about? <sighs> Do you know what? I, I, off the top of my head, I'm not entirely sure. I think he got. Uh, someone just said, you know, this guy's almost certainly carrying. Uh, they 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 broke into his flat with a warrant and um and arrested him. And he got eight months, I think, in prison. Um, And there was a sort of, uh, there there were two effects on that. One of them was they did a huge fundraiser at Alexandra Palace, which was the Technicolor Dream, which was basically UFO kind of transposed to the Alexandra Palace. Um, And the other thing was that Joe Boyd kind of came in and took over more control, and there became more of a kind of conflict, I guess, between the commercial and the cultural, or the countercultural, reasons behind UFO. Um, I mean, there's so many interesting currents going on. People like Mick Farron, who was like doing the door. But who was, who was Mick Farron? So Mick Farron was um, he was a kind of uh, well, he was a, he was a hippie and an anarchist. He was in a band called the Social Deviants, um, but he was uh, he was a bit heavier. Like you know, he he was quite into um, uh, he he wasn't he wasn't coming from the intellectual side of the counterculture. I guess is what you'd say. So he was often used as a bit of um, a sort of he's a very smart man. He also died fairly recently, Um, but he was used as a sort of like the doorman. He would he would go in and like if if there was a problem, they'd call for Mick to sort it out. Um, But he also did things like, you know, took over IT's office at one point because he didn't think that they were doing things the right way. You know, he was sort of quite tough. Yeah. Yeah. I
0: suppose they would need a. a you know, hippies need a doorman like everybody else, don't yeah, they? I mean, yeah, yeah. Keep, keep out the wrong sort and all that stuff.
1: I mean, later on they used um, they used the sort of um, the British Black Panthers, Michael right. X's British Black Panthers to do the door. Because I think when they moved, the UFO eventually had to move to Camden and there they attracted the attention of the skinheads and that got quite nasty.
0: So um, Hoppy's in prison. Hoppy's in prison, uh, yeah. So Joy Boyd's Who's a you know music producer and stuff? He's, so it's becoming maybe the club's becoming more music focused, is it as well? And at the same time, I mean, it's it's drawing a bigger crowd. I mean, people like Jenny Fabian who we had in, you know, the yeah. groupy. You know, I think the book, book opens or with a night there when she's yeah. when she meets somebody who's obviously Sid Barrett, yeah, uh, in his decline, and um, so it starts to draw people. Punters and uh, celebs, I suppose, does not yeah, it? Yeah,
1: and I think also it's drawing what you know, would, would you know, the weekenders, the weekend hippies, mm-hmm. who the you know the real freaks, you know, the twenty four seven freaks, had a bit of disdain for. People always do for outsiders uh, coming into their culture, and I think that was a problem. Um, yeah, uh, so they did, but the big event at Alexandra Palace it was the mm-hmm. kind of, you know, that that might have been in some ways, even though it wasn't actually on Tottenham Court Road, the kind of key moment. For mm. that, You know, they had a helter-skelter. John Lennon turned up. Um, 14-hour telling kill the killer dreams. So,
0: so it was an all-nighter, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, UFO was an all-nighter as well. Okay. That's the other thing okay. to remember about, about UFO. W- one of the things that IT was agitating for was a 24-hour London. Um, and they felt that if they were going to put a club on, uh, it had to be one that kind of embraced that philosophy. So I think it opened at 10 and closed at 8 a.m., um, you know, in time to get the tube home. So, people do say that around five or six, it could get pretty, pretty depressing. Everyone's just asleep. <laughs> um, but, you know, but they, they maintained that it was an all nighter. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the Technicolor Dream is also an all nighter.
0: Right, and so how did that go? So that was like fundraiser, profile raiser for Hoppy in... in uh, yeah. And the Stones had been busted, or they were about to be busted as well? The Stones they?
1: were being... God, it's difficult to, without the timeline in front mm. of me to remember it all. I don't think the Stones had quite been busted at that point, mm. and they got busted later. Um, but it was it was in the air, so it's about the, 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 the establishment's
0: fighting back. You know, there's this burgeoning, hippie, countercultural underground scene. Yeah. Not just in London, but obviously centered in yeah. London. And, uh, you know, word has got out and the establishment don't like it. This one's cracked down, Hoppy's in prison, mm-hmm. probably a few other people get arrested. And then they have this technical, the dream thing in Alexander Palace, which is amazing that they managed to get that place to do it, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I love about this. People have this idea that, like, you know, the, the hippies were a bit sort of like dreamy and, like, you know, sort of insubstantial, I think. And what always impresses me is, is they did some, they had some really big ambitions and they pulled them off. So, you know, you've got, you've got, there's two things that made me think about that. And one of them is the, the, the Technicolor Dream, which was this major, major event in Alexandra Palace, which they managed to persuade and hire and fit. And, you know, I think they raised money. I don't know if they raised money. They hardly ever ended up raising quite as much money as they wanted to. But they certainly raised profile. It was on the news. Um, and the other thing they did around the same time was take out a full-page ad in The Times um, advocating for a change in the, the laws around cannabis, which was signed by all four Beatles as well as numerous doctors and politicians, um, you know these were really ambitious concepts uh, that they, you know, that they that they they organised and executed. Do you
0: think there was a feeling um, that revolution? You mentioned it earlier that was actually round the corner. Then that actually the combination of the raised consciousness of acids the political influences that people were bringing in from abroad. And, you know, you mentioned uh, from Holland, but also from America and stuff. And then this new way of thinking, it's all coming
1: together. Did you think people really felt that actually it's just around the corner? I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did. I think if you were in the middle of it, then you definitely believed it was happening. What was probably very easy to uh, forget if you were in the middle of it was that you were in a very, very, very small bubble. (laughs) Um, John Peel always talks about how, like, you know, him and his mates would all, like, talk about how much they loved the New Country Joe record, and then you look at it in the charts and it was, like, 163, and that was when you realised that, you know, you were actually a minority. Mm. So I think, Mm. yeah, those guys in the middle of it thought it, but... Uh, that's because they were in the middle of it.
0: I mean, let's talk about that because that's interesting in itself. We talk, you've got like an underground community. Now, um, you know, talking to Jenny Fabian and, you know, obviously what's, what permeates her book, Groupie, is a kind of like status war, isn't it, as well? It's like who's who's in, who's out, mm. you know, as, as Gansburg uh, sang, you know, and, um, and, you know, within, who's the kind of, obviously her state scale was group members, management and all that stuff, mm-hmm. you know, cause, uh, as a groupie, but... There was this whole thing about it's our scene. Mm. And she talks about that. There was this feeling, it was our scene, which starts to get taken over, as you say, mm. weekend hippies or mm. or you know, commercial interests start to come in. But there was that very much this sense of this is our thing and but what was it? I mean it was
1: it was a sort of nebulous sort of thing as well, wasn't it? What what defined it as being the underground? Cool, that's a good question um what defines it as being the underground i mean you know on a very basic level it's 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 your hair um it's your <laughs> hair and your clothes um and but, but, s- drug users presumably drug use but as i say i don't think that was i think you didn't have to be taking drugs but you certainly had to not you know you certainly had to be sympathetic to the idea of taking drugs and you had to tolerate being around people who were taking a lot of drugs um and yeah it was an outlook it was um you know and and one one person I'd like to talk about is Caroline Kuhn, mm. um, who formed Release, and that came out of out of exact directly out of out of UFO. Um, you know, she talks about how part of it was having a kind of you know not just an anti-establishment attitude, but like a pro-environment, a pro-race uh, relations, a pro you know feminism, you know anti-gay, uh, you know not not being homophobic. You know, all those kind of things are now you know theoretically, well, they're actually enshrined in law um mm. at that time it was not that's certainly not the case um and that was one of the major things that came out of this it was it was it was having that attitude that everything was was okay how did that come out of UFO though? release mm. release directly was so caroline coon um she had a boyfriend who was busted uh west indian boyfriend i think who was busted for drugs she's kind of in the, in the course of trying to find out, uh, to try to defend him, she did a lot of research into drug laws. She then kind of started acting almost as a consultant for more sort of uh, high offending drug, uh, drug users. Including um, the Stones, um, right? Including the Stones, yeah, and George Harrison. Um, and part of that was a formation of a group called Release, um, and that was funded by money from the door um, at UFO. Right. uh it was directly funded uh a certain percentage of the money but you know within that were, i think hoppy and caroline coon didn't actually get on so this was one of joe boyd's thing so you know there's always these complicated factors going on um but you know release still continues to exist today um and is you know a really important institution uh that's come out directly from that from that movement
0: yeah so that's what we we're saying at the beginning isn't it is that the these, this this one place in London for a year and it's sort of, it's had this kind of like ripple effect, hasn't it, with, uh, in terms of countercultural effects of all all the stuff going on and music and all sorts of stuff, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, completely, completely. I mean, and you've got people like, um, you know, Hendrix who would come down there and join in, you know, and and absorb the vibe and then bring it, Further to the world, I mean that's the other that's the other really important thing about music and all this, and the fact that the people like the Beatles and and the Who were interested is that they went down to the UFO for whatever reason, uh, absorbed the vibe, and then you know really did give that to the world, um, you know, including taking it to America, um, hmm. which is what Hendrix really did at sort of Monterey. Um, Again, uh, you know, borrowed from your piece, but
0: Twink says uh, there's this. Hendrix comes to you for tomorrow playing and he jams with him. He playing yeah. bass, interestingly. And yeah. Twink says, uh, well, he plays jams playing bass for 20, 20 minutes and uh, Twink says, a truly magical 20 minutes and a wonderful memory. At the end, I turned to Jimmy, who was now sitting on the floor in front of the bass amp. Jimmy looked up at me and said, is this love? <laughs> <laughs> you can't imagine saying that these days. No, you? you really can't. <laughs> I mean, you no, really can't. Or, or not sort of saying it with a straight face. anyway no. it's sort of a. Uh, but but of course, then I mean, yeah, th- it was love, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, completely, though? completely. All, all I mean, you love, need is love, and that, love, that was well, it, wasn't it? Well, you know?
1: exactly. Love, love, was the kind of um the the kind of catchphrase, wasn't it? And mm. and it then was uh you know Lennon wrote um all you need is love, and it kind of mm. became an anthem. And and but the the problem with that is that it's can slightly um overshadow some of the other. Elements of it, which was a quite hardcore politics of what was going on, mm. and the kind of bri- you know the brutal war against the establishment. that was, you know, seeing seeing innocent people, uh, you know, incarcerated for you know having a bit of weed in their pocket. Yeah. Um. You know, writing. You know, talking right now at a time when you know uh, the, the the Tory leadership uh, co- uh, contest is going on and. You know, they're all admitting having a smoke and cannabis at and denying their they enjoyed it and, and enjoyed it and and or they denying they enjoyed it, don't they? Oh, of course they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or they took it by accident, and never did it again. Yeah, but or denying their younger selves—that's the way it seems to me. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a very weird thing. Yeah, that's another massive subject because
0: of course psychedelic drugs are on the way back in, aren't they? Through 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 sort of university testing and all mm. that sort of stuff. But um, back at you, UFO. Um, you know the year is rolling on. You know mm. and there's there's more bands playing, and I'm going to play this uh, track now, and then we can talk about it or at least its title afterwards, because there's another big part of that whole scene which is important. Well,
1: she lives on-
0: Takes a trip. There's the purple, the purple gang. I'd never heard of that track before, actually. But we're, the title's obviously significant. But it's got a bit of, uh, it got, it's got a bit of everything there, isn't it? A bit it of does. washboard, a bit of skiffle. It does. It's it's, it's,
1: it's interesting. It's kind of that other side of the uh, of the sort of psychedelic movement, which was a slightly sort of almost twee kind of music hall style. Uh, thing which you know kind of floyd managed to kind of uh, sort of assimilate the two together and and the beatles as well um yeah i mean granny takes trips obviously the name of the uh the the shop on the um, on the king's road which was uh the elite shopping location for for your freaks in your
0: heads which came first the track or the shop then ah well that's what that's the one for google isn't it (laughs) um it's a massive thing. It's really apparent in, in in Jenny Fabian's book Groupie. You know, is 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 the fashion aspects mm-hmm. of it as well. As it, of course it was in punk and, and and rave as well in a different sort of way. But I mean, you know, this peacocking, you know, the sort of almost like baroque fashion styles, amazing. And you know, and uh, in Groupie, you know, she's always Katie the. Protagonist, you know, she's always talking about. She's got new hairdo that Mm. day, and she's sort of, you know, she's got crushed velvet, super tight trousers, and high rough collars and Mm. stuff. And it was, it was quite a, uh, it was quite a flamboyant sight, wasn't it? I guess Dan UFO?
1: Oh, I imagine it must have been. I mean, it would. I mean, one of the real sort of shames is uh, that there's there's almost no existing footage of it. There's a couple of bits of film clips here and there, and there's very few pictures, so you can't quite get an idea of what it really did look like. But yeah, obviously, colourful fashion was was such a, a an important part of it. And actually, you know, the, the, the you know the men were allowed to wear uh, feminine clothes in a lot of ways. Well, capes.
0: I mean, you know, men haven't been wearing capes since the Tudor era, <laughs> Tudor
1: period, had they?
0: I, um, and t- t- tights and pointy shoes and. Uh, and you know it's it was it was wonderful, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and and a lot of these things were kind of one-off items, so you know you mm-hmm. had to get it. You know it wasn't it wasn't mass. You know there's no sort of mass market for this. It really mm-hmm. was. You had the unique thing, um, and there was a lot of one-upmanship. Who had this? Who had that? Mm-hmm. Um, there was a bit of kind of DIY going on as well.
0: And Granny takes a trip. The shop. I mean, I suppose there is a reference because a lot of those clothes that they were adapting and in the way that um, later Vivian Westwood would on Kings Road. They were like, they were granny's clothes, weren't they? You know, Mm. stuff from the sort of 20s and 30s and sort of, you know, being...
1: And similarly, you got the other one was Lord Kitchener's Ballet, which was sort of, you know, more military style things, which then sort of you saw on the cover of Sergeant Pepper, Um, you know, that that was another aspect of it. You know, Hendrix as well with his kind of military jackets. Um, They were were two interesting, you know, I've not really explored the fashion element of it that much. But it's interesting that those were the two two of the areas that were being sort of adapted for this psychedelic lifestyle.
0: Yeah, the military thing. It's interesting because that felt to me, or seems to me, that it was a bit also a bit of a response to military staff, wasn't it? I mean, um, later the combat jacket in the early
1: seventies became a sort of yeah, it was the a... rigueur
0: fashion for a for a counterculture, um, you know, type, didn't it? And um, it was like subverting that, wasn't
1: it? Exactly subverting that. And there's, there's that line, isn't there, in the very is it the first Beatles film where? Uh, Someone says to Ringo, oh, I you know, I fought the war for you," and he says, "Oh, I bet you regret that, or I bet you wish you'd mm. lost." You know, and that's right. It was in the very early of the si- early in the sixties, this generation that had grown up, born maybe at the end of the war and grown up, and we're already pissed off with people sort of you know thrusting this back down their throats. Um, and that which, must have hurt for the people who did fight. Actually, oh, of God, course. yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it was it's it's you know it's it would have been. We, we forget I think from this distance how you know how how little time there was between the end of the Second World War and. You know, it's 20-odd years. I mean, that's nothing you realise when you're in your 40s. Um, but when you're in your 20s, that's that's your that's your lifetime.
0: Yeah, so, you know, for Ringo and Co., it was like, oh, shut up, Dad, you know. Yeah, totally, uh, yeah. Whereas for, for the people who'd fought and sort of suffered and all that, it yeah. was like, you know, you don't know how good you've got it. You know, we, we died and we died for you sort of thing. So it's and all it's cl- coming together, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and this clearly was a generational clash. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I don't think there were very many older hippies, even some of the kind of... Um, the kind of the guys that come from the beat movement uh, were a bit sceptical of the of the hippy movement. You know, they did, I don't think they saw it as serious um, because it wasn't about poetry and jazz. You know, mm. and so there was a real, real generation clash. And I'm sure there were the odd one or two who who kind of embraced it, but generally speaking,
0: yeah. And I suppose the other thing about sort of Granny takes a trip in the fashion thing was that I mean, I guess they were purveyors of uh, groovy. Seen outfits to the fairly well to do, I guess, because I mean, it was that stuff looked like it was could be quite expensive, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was, and I think that that's where place, places like Carnaby Street came in where you could kind of get it for a bit cheaper. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the the rock stars did go there, but I, I think the other thing to remember is that other than the maybe the Beatles. I don't know how much disposable income most bands had at this point. I know that, for instance, like, you know, the small faces were, you know, they they didn't have a lot of disposable income Mm. because they were being screwed left, right and centre. I think the kinks were similar. A lot of them were not getting as much money as they were entitled to. So they weren't on hugely elevated wages. I think that came that came later in the 70s um, when bands uh, began to have a much stronger sense of how much money they were actually worth. Um, well, it's also, I think at that time, Miles has said,
0: um, I love this, You know his story about coming to London was, I think he, you know, hopped on a coach in Cheltenham or Sirencester, wherever he came from. and uh, This is a potted version of it, but he arrived in, in London and walked down Charing Cross Road, famous bookshop roads in London, and he knew he wanted to work in a bookshop and went into one and said to the guy behind the counter, um do you know where I can get a job? And the guy said, you can start now if you like. And then he went out at lunchtime and got himself a flat on Dean Street. Mm. Um, mm. And he said that at that time, people didn't get paid very much, but things didn't cost very much. Yeah. It was a different kind of economy, I suppose. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah.
1: And, and and no one really, you know, living in, living in town was not mm. seen as something um, particularly aspirational. So, you know, you could get a place in Soho. Um, you know, I think, I think they were available. You know, yeah, it was you available. Could, it might not be easy, but they were certainly available in a way that now I'd think for most people they're they really not, unless he, you get extremely fortunate.
0: He did say that there was no electricity in his first place. Yes. Yeah. Uh when <laughs> you could wander in and out of a job and you could if you worked on live on Dean Street and work on Charing Cross Road, you could walk
1: up to UFO. Yeah. You
0: know, couldn't easily and then stay there till three o'clock in the morning and yeah. then walk home and get a bacon sandwich or something yep, on completely. the way, right? I
1: mean, yeah, I think, you know, for, for most of these people uh, you know, the concept of zone two just didn't exist. You know, mm. they did not go outside central London. It was not seen as in any way acceptable, unless you went to someone like Knigh Hill, specifically. or Chelsea, or something. Or Chelsea, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: So, um, Pete, what happened to UFO then? I mean, what was the demise of it?
1: So the demise of UFO. I mean, I guess Hoppy going inside was probably the kind of um, part of the long term demise. It kind of lost a little bit of its uh, of its of its kind of. Um, Warmth, I think, of a little bit of that it became a little bit more of more of a music venue because you know Joe Boyd did have exceptionally good music taste, um, but you know that was his interest; it was music, um, so it became more of a music venue at that point. Um, I mean, there were kind of other moments. There was, you know, after the the Rolling Stones, um I think actually before the Rolling Stones bust, when. Um, it was clear that the stones had been set up by a sting involving the news of the world. The UFO, the UFO pundits all punters all kind of rushed out onto the street and marched on Fleet Street screaming revolution. You know, there were these kind of moments that continued through through it. But eventually the kind of press um, attention got too much. There was a sting in I think it was this might be in the Sunday Mirror saying um, that hippies had been, you know, injecting reefer at this um, underground club in the centre of London. Um, And the Irish landlord, who'd been pretty um, accommodating, I think, to some of the more extreme um, avant-garde happenings there, just said, look, you know, I'm going to get busted. You know, I I can't keep giving the police a crate of whiskey and asking them to leave me alone. Um, It's not in my interest anymore. So they had to find another venue. And this is where Boyd's kind of ambitions took over slightly because he went and rather than finding a similar sized venue in central London, of which, you know, there probably were, you know, there are so many basements in, in, in the West End he could have chosen, but he went to the roundhouse. Um which was at the at that time um, run by um Arnold Wesker, the playwright. Let's have
0: a listen hmm. to this. A wonderful venue up in Camden Absolutely. Camden Market as it is now. Absolutely. I mean, and you you can circular, see you can circular see building.
1: you can see his ambition in wanting to go for the roundhouse. I mean, it is, and it, it had been the scene of one of the early kind of um parties. There'd been a there'd been a sort of um there's sort of been a big a big party there at the beginning of the I think the IT launch party was held there. So it was a known counterculture venue already. Um but it was big uh, you had to have bigger bands. The bands also were starting to ask for more money. You needed more security. It all it's it all got bigger, and I think it became much harder to keep you know back to that word pure. Um, and also, I think it got bit, pretty nasty there. I think there were a lot of invasions by skinheads, um, who were you know starting to come on the scene. I mean, you know, skinheads. It's interesting. I always think of skinheads as sort of being a sort of later in the 60s movement, maybe, maybe 69 is always sort of talked about as the skinhead time. But in 67, they were already on the scene almost as a, you know, and, and in everything about them, they were the antithesis of the hippie. You know, they wore, you know, they, they wore plain clothes and they, hadn't, they had very, very short hair.
0: It's interesting the skinhead thing, isn't it? And sort of, Became associated with like football hooliganism and stuff, didn't it? And because, of course, they were also counterculture
1: themselves in a yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. It was working class counterculture mm-hmm. in a very different way. Um, defining
0: themselves in a way in opposition to that, wasn't it? I mean, obviously skinheads, so you got no hair rather than long hair. Mm-hmm. The clothes themselves were kind of uh, pared down, weren't they? Much more uniform, mm-hmm. a bit more military in a strange way, weren't
1: yeah. they? Uh, style, But very stylized, actually. Yeah. And, uh, and instead of um, peace and love, you had, you know, you had. Hate and violence, I think, mm. to a certain extent. The Rac- other interesting, thing, the other interesting, is, but the other interesting thing is the music. You know, skinhead mm. music was the antithesis, really, of hippie music. Mm. In that, you know, they loved they loved soul and ska and reggae, um, mm. and the hippies were liking, you know, what is you. Could safely describe as very white music.
0: Yeah, the interesting because the of course the um, mods had sort of split in a way, hadn't they? Some mods yes. became psychedelic. Yeah, and small faces and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And other ones went then more in the sort of skinhead route in a way. Yeah, a way, I
1: think it? that's generally seen as as what happened. Or, or certainly the maybe maybe not the original mods, but the kind of the subculture of mods. Maybe mods younger brothers and sisters mm. split into these two different avenues: the skinheads and the and the hippies.
0: The you're talking about, you know, Joe Boyd taking you folk to Roundhouse and, you know, getting bigger, getting more commercial, you know, but the launch pad for, you know, bands much more so, you mm. know, some of them became massive afterwards. And that of course is always the story of the counterculture, isn't it? is not it? that you know, however however sort of insider it starts off, mm. however small the core is, however pure it is to use the word you used earlier, you know, commercial interests come in. Whenever there's money to be made you know, people come in who've got not any interest in counterculture. They just, well, there's a business opportunity. Mm. Dark stuff starts to happen. People get arrested. Uh, and, of course, me, you know, the music changes as well. I mean, it's interesting, uh, you know, in terms of the music that was going on at UFO, some of those bands, Dantalian's Chariot, had been straight R&B bands, hadn't they? Yeah. They sort of, I don't know whether it was kind of cynical or not, but they'd sort of, they you know, seen, where, they, seen where, they, where, the, where the tide was going and sort of you know, hitch there makes him a metaphor the their chariot in this case to, yeah. to not they Ch- zoop money became Dantallian's yeah, chariot yeah i mean
1: i love i love that transformation by mm. zoop money who as you say was like a very sort of traditional r&b uh yeah, pretty cool super uh, groovy yeah, yeah 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 but you know change change with the times you know in a, in a sense that's exactly what the beatles and floyd and and you know that's what, that's what they're done really the floyd has start off as a, pretty much as a blues band um, and their music is based in in the blues um but i think the the um Dantallian's chariot is probably the most Exaggerated example of, of, of that transformation.
0: Yeah, and of course, featuring Andy Summers uh, on yeah. guitar, who went on for another transformation mm. and became hugely successful in The Police, right? Let's have another track. <laughs> Makes sweet music when well, a soft machine that's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, soft machine, you know, quintessential UFO band, right? Yeah. Psychedelic and stuff. That's quite sort of solely RP, it really isn't is. It, isn't it? It. I mean,
1: I think, I think, I think Joe Boyd produced that, which I think might be sort of uh, I think he was going for something commercial, really. And it isn't really what soft machine ever were or ever would be. And I certainly it's not what they were playing at UFO, they were playing much more of their kind of trippy free jazz stuff. Um, but Suffolkino an Interesting Man, so they, they pretty much came in and replaced Floyd as the house band. Um, because Floyd were getting more Floyd successful. Floyd were getting too big. And they were, you know, I, I think also Joe Boyd had lost control of Floyd at that point. So there was kind of political problems as well, because he'd produced the first single, um, and then he'd lost control. Barrett had gone off the rails. Barrett was going off the rails throughout this year. I mean, that's another sort of thing that was happening, I guess. Yeah. Um, so Soft Machine came in and they kind of took over. And Robert Wyatt's an interesting guy. Cause whenever you ask Robert Wyatt about um, about you know what was it like the scene, he always says, "Well, I don't know. I was playing the gigs. You know, I was travelling. You know, I didn't really have the luxury of um, of, of discovering what was going on." Uh, UFO because either I was playing it or I was playing somewhere else, mm. um, and I think that's you know that, that's quite interesting. You know, Townsend and McCartney were able to do it because of their size and stature, but for a lot of the and Hendrix, but for a lot of the kind of jobbing musicians at this point, um, they were working. You know, so I don't think many of them had the time to come down to UFO because they were touring.
0: Yeah, they were sort of travelling up and down the M six or the M one in back of vans and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah they were probably in
1: service stations of the blue ball.
0: Yeah, or then later going to <laughs> the States, right?
1: Yeah. Um Soft Machine though, I mean, amazing.
0: And that but that truck it's it's it is a bit more commercial. I mean it's interesting hearing it now. I mean say produced by uh, Joe Boyd. it sounds quite unproduced, which is one of the great things about it. <laughs> yeah,
1: it? <laughs> yeah. I think Robert White says that one of the things he loved about playing UFO was that uh, they didn't really want to hear that R&B stuff there, but if they did, they wanted to hear it done quite, you know, quite, quite roughly, and that's what mm. they were quite good at, because that wasn't their strength. They weren't, they weren't really that kind of a band. Mm. We mentioned Barrett, and um, of course, it's difficult to have any kind of conversation about
0: London at this time, and without mentioning Sid Barrett, because of the kind of mythic status that he's that he sort of achieved later, and then mm. and then also his arc, and he sort of represents in some way as well, doesn't he? The kind of dark underside of you know swinging sixties and the sort of the, the summer of love and, and UFO and stuff. Yeah, the, the drugs going bad.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the sort of quintessential acid acid casualty. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure he was a regular at UFO even when, even when he wasn't playing there, um, and he couldn't take it um and there was no one there to kind of help him or people did no that's not fair people tried to help him but but they couldn't
0: there was this this scene as all scenes have got their kind of dark side haven't they and it's uh, that's it's it's maybe it's there from the beginning but from this time on it starts to kind of like uh, yeah change a bit doesn't it and-
1: i think so i mean but i do think that you know acid was you know i think probably heroin was probably starting to creep in not long after this um and that Almost well, that obviously had a far sort of you know more negative effect on on the music scene than than acid, which was you know there were there were a handful of casualties, and acid mm-hmm. is obviously the one that everyone sort of knows about.
0: I mean, you can chart uh, the changes in the music scene in this country or probably or else elsewhere according to the drugs that came in, can't you? Because you yeah. got when you got the late fifties with speed and. The mods and all that stuff, and pills then pills and uppers, p- yeah. pills and uppers, and then weed comes in and it starts to mellow out a bit, and then acid comes in and it starts to get enlightened in mm. some way, or whatever, and then then. Followed by heroin and cocaine, and mm. it starts to get much darker, doesn't it? Mm, mm, and Jenny mm, talks absolutely. about that, you know, that after after the success of Groupie, yeah, her book, and uh, what happened next? Yeah, into the seventies, cocaine comes in, and
1: yeah, I mean, cocaine, I don't think was was around at all, really, in the, in the late sixties. Mm. It was an early seventies thing, but heroin had always been there in the counterculture because of the kind of the jazz and mm. the and the beat kind of um, origins, really, of of the movement, um, and it came into music in 68 really i think mm. he was coming back into music I mean, that's when lennon was experimenting as he would have mm. described it. Uh, i think he did describe but anyway, that's what lennon lennon was taking home in 68 um and then cocaine which you know is, is that cocaine responsible for prog rock God, you know i was I, so I, I often think so seriously of cocaine as uh, you know I, I don't know if there's anything positive culturally that's come out from the use of cocaine, I'm not really sure. Maybe Motorhead. Um, although I think actually they were on speed, weren't they? They were on really, so, yeah. really, really bad speed. You
0: sort of, ass- uh, you, yeah, you kind of associate cocaine with sort of the twilight creative years of, of artists, don't you? Yeah, uh, Taking yourself a bit too seriously and getting a bit complicated about stuff.
1: Whereas Acid, you know, did produce mm. some, some
0: really great music, you know. It really I mean, did. It really did. Um, so, Pete, we're getting to the end of this. So, uh, of course, you know, other clubs came after UFO, you, maybe not as influential or, or was that alongside it middle Earth and yeah stuff,
1: didn't yeah so that was the other thing I guess is the is what we were talking about before with the kind of you know the kind of uh, the, you know the, the, the scene becomes less pure um, the original scene anyway part of that is other people decide to see what's going on and decide they want to do it. so you had middle Earth. You have, and you had, you had fairly conventional venues, R&B venues. You had, like, the Flamingo Club, which had been a sort of important sort of early 60s R&B venue, renamed itself the Pink Flamingo, um, sort of painted itself pink and sort of tried to become a psychedelic venue. You had um, a similar thing happened at Ilpi Island. Um, it gave itself some like Colonel Barefoot's... Uh, party place or i gave it some crazy name um and tried to become a kind of hippie venue um you know these were successful to you know to to a lesser degree i think because they were quite blatant um middle earth did better because it was it, it was it was central um and it seemed a bit more genuine there were real counterculture people involved in it um but yeah i mean that 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 was the, the general drift
0: and Maybe I have one more tune. This is the Move. Now, the Move. I don't know anything about the Move. I mean, <laughs> that's sort of fascinating, isn't was it? wasn't not its it my imagination, or was Roy Wood in the Move?
1: Yeah, Roy yeah. Wood is in the Move. I love the Move. Um, what I love about the Move is that they were um, they were really unsophisti they were unsophisticated, but they certainly weren't from this scene. But they knew how to how to, how to make music that was that was that was for the scene.
0: And. You know, this track's called I Can Hear the Grass Grow." Again, it's not a sort of, uh, you couldn't get away with that title these days, could you? No,
1: not at all, not at all. And uh, I think this was the first song ever played on Radio 1 as well. And I think the last night, one, one thing I, I always find quite interesting is the last night of UFO was then followed by the first day of Radio 1. And that really is for me a kind of sign, you know, that, that's a sign that it works, you know, it, it, it passed the baton on um because radio one was playing all those songs that had come that had been played um in in ufo
0: and that was a recognition i mean obviously pirate radio was pressing them from one side wasn't it It was a recognition that this counterculture was now becoming the culture
1: absolutely and certainly in musical terms yeah pete thank you we're looking forward to next time thank you very much
0: in the meantime this is the move <laughs> You make I can hear the grass grow by the move, live at UFO Club, sometime in the late 1960s, finishing this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture. Our guest was Peter Watts, journalist and countercultural commentator. You can check out more of Pete's work at his amazing blog, greatwhen.com. That's W-E-N. I'm Stephen Coach. You can check out more of what we do at bureauoflostculture.com. See you next time for more strange, lost, countercultural stories.